and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including acclaimed authors Jesse Burton, Claire Pooley and Kirsty Capes. CBC run a wide range of courses for writers at different stages of their creative journeys. Their new four-week online course, Plot and Story, The Deep Dive, is the perfect next step for any fiction writer struggling to weave the threads of their narrative together. Exclusive teaching videos, resources and writing tasks from best-selling author Laura Barnett will teach you the most useful theories of story structure and show you how to use them to shape your plot. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of Plot and Story, The Deep Dive, or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon and myself spoke to the novelist Ruth Ozeki. We spoke to Ruth about her childhood interest in writing, the mutually reinforcing practices of Buddhism and writing, and her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Ruth, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you, Rachel. Could we start with your latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness? It follows 13-year-old Benny, who, after his father's death, starts to hear the voices of household objects. Where did the idea originate? Oh, you know, it's it's always a hard question. It seems like it should be an easy question, but it's a hard question for a novel um, because I find that uh, novels start with a kind of constellation of ideas. You know, it's it's a group of ideas that I'm not even really aware that I'm having, um, but then they sort of, you know, come together and constellate. And suddenly from there, um, you know, the, the novel or the voice of the novel or the voice of the character just starts to speak. Um, I think this one, um, so again, it's it's not just one thing, but it's a kind of a series of things. Um, one of the, um, the factors, certainly one of the elements was um, a Zen koan that I was, um, you know, that, that has always interested me. Um, and and uh, the key line in there is a question, do insentient beings speak the Dharma, right? So do insentient beings like objects or trees or flowers or, you know, whatever, um, can they be our teachers, right? Um, can they teach us about reality, right? And um, so that was always a question that it's a story and I, I you know, I find it really interesting. And um, so I was kind of thinking about that. Um, the other thing though was, um, you know, this idea of hearing voices. And um, I've had a, you know, after my dad died, I had a sort of voice, you know, voice hearing experience myself, um, hearing him, you know, sort of calling my name. And so that stayed with me. But also, you know, this sense that um, novels, you know, books, stories have voices in them, right? And as a writer, I'm always listening for the voice of the you know, the book, the voice of the character, um, you know, something to sort of speak to me. And this was something I was talking about with uh, um, a group of people at a library once. And um, and so I think those two ideas kind of collided. Um, and then, you know, there were other things as well. But, you know, I think those were the sort of the foundational ideas. And with this area of, of hearing voices, this theme in the novel, how did you go about researching that? Is it right that you, you spoke to support groups, psychologists, people kind of in that community. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I did have this experience myself. Um, and so that made me curious about it. This was right after my dad died. And, um, you know, uh, it was the oddest thing because I would, you know, I'd be doing something fairly innocuous and random and, and you know, not interesting, like washing the dishes or, you know, folding my laundry or something. And, um, and I would hear him um, and, and it was always as though he was standing behind me, um, and he would clear his voice, clear his throat, and he would say my name, 
And it would happen very quickly. And I'd kind of turn around and, but of course, you know, he was dead. He wasn't there. And, and so, you know, every time this happened, I would kind of get a hit of, you know, that feeling of loss and, and, you know, grief and, and, um, you know, all those kind of emotions that, 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 you know, follow the death of someone you love. And, um, and so, Having had this experience, I started to think about the way that voices, um, you know, voices, you you can hear voices. And this was an experience where I really heard the voice, heard his voice sort of with my ear as though he was outside, right? Versus, you know, when I'm writing, it's like a kind of more internal experience, right? So to go back to your question, um, Simon, um, I started to think about this spectrum and I have friends who uh, are voice hearers. And so I started talking to them about their experience, something that we had done, you know, um, before and also friends, uh, psychi- uh, psychologists who work in the field of, um, of voice hearing. And so it just became something that I, you know, um, I, I started reading books, just kind of trying to find as many perspectives on this topic as I could. And of course, there's wonderful online resources too. Um, Hearing Voices Network. Um, I think it's uh, Hearing Voices USA. There's, you know, it's an international organization of, um, you know, people who hear voices and who support each other in their experiences. And, and these are all, of course, unshared experiences, right? Um, you know, the voice that I heard of my dad calling my name nobody else could hear it, right? But I think the same thing is true for, you know, obviously the, you know, for a novel, you know, this is an unshared experience until I choose to share it, right? So, um, you know, this, this uh, sort of, it's a spectrum, really, of, of, you know, voice hearing experience that I think we all share. Um, it's just that some are pathologized and some are not. You mentioned being able to hear the voices of characters internally when you're writing. Has that always been the case throughout your career or is it something that has developed as you've as you've gone on? That's a good question. I have to now I have to think back. Um I th- well no, I think it's something that I've always been able to do. And it's again, it's not hearing with my ears. It's a more, you know, sort of mental hearing. It's it's, you know, sort of getting the tone of the way a character speaks or sometimes it's an entire book you know a kind of um slightly ironic tone or a or a, you know sort of more sincere tragic tone or you know there's there's so many different um you know there's so many different tones that that writing can take right um and so that i think that's always been there you know i think i've i've always thought that being a musician being a composer would be the most sublime creative act um, and, and I, I think I still feel that way. Um, but this is a, a kind of an approximation of that, I suppose. You know, it's, it's, um, rather than seeing things, I think I do tend to hear things. Could we fold now back to the start of your writing career and, and where your sort of interest in, in matters literary first came from? Is it right that you, you used to practice signing autographs as a child? that you still have some of these. <laughs> oh my God. Where did that? Yes. I, well, I, I did. Yeah. When I was very little. Um, that's so funny. Uh, I, I feel like I've been, you know, sort of found out or something, but, um, when I, my friend and I, I remember it was probably in fourth grade, third grade, we used to practice signing our names and it wasn't so much that we thought that we were going to be famous and need, would need to autograph, you know, books, even though I think Maybe that idea was there, you know, as well. But it was more that somehow by writing, you know, by finding the right way to sign your name, um, you would become more substantial somehow. It was a, it was a way of almost inscribing yourself into being, right? Um, and, and, and so yes, we did that and we used to practice all different kinds of signatures, you know. Um, I, I mean, you know, this reminds me too of, of, um, when I was in, when I was growing up, you know, we, we learned to write, um, with these stubby pencils, right? That had very wide leads. And we had a, we had a British, uh, teacher and, um, she was, you know, teaching us how to write italics. And so that was how we, that was how I learned to write, you know, um, with a kind of an upright italic font. And the big deal in my school in third grade was that we were allowed to move from pencils, from these stubby pencils, um, to fountain pens. 
And this was such a big deal. You know, I, we would talk about it for, you know, all through first grade and second grade, we would talk about how much we were looking forward to third grade when we could, you know, we could get our fountain pens and the barrels came in different colors. You know, I think it was like red, green, blue, maybe that was it. Right? But it was a big decision, you know, what color barrel of fountain pen you were going to get. Um, I, I just remember being terribly excited by that. And I still am really excited by pens. <laughs> You are not the only one. Simon is, is uh, smiling in acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I have a stationary problem. But, um, I have a stationary know. problem too. Oh my God, it's really bad. <laughs> and in terms of your childhood, was it particularly bookish? You obviously went on to study literature at Smith College in your late teens, but what were you reading and consuming and writing throughout your sort of formative years? I it was I was a bookish kid. I was an only child, right? Um, so, uh, and my parents were both, um, you know, they were both professors. They were, you know, both scholars, and it was a very quiet household. And each of us were in our own bookish solitudes, and um, you know, so I, that was my, you know, books were my friends, and and you know, I didn't since I didn't have siblings and I didn't have parents who were, you know, who would play with me. Um, you know, this, this was, these were my companions. And, you know, I think I started out reading, you know, children's books. Like, you know, I remember in particular books like um, Once in Future King or, um, you know, the Narnia um, series or um, Tolkien, obviously. Um, Charlotte's Web was a, you know, was one that was very, I, I remember that so clearly. And I reread that recently and suddenly rereading it, I realized that we think that's a book about a little girl who saves the life of a pig who then makes friends with a spider, right? But what what I didn't realize until I reread it is that the spider, Charlotte, right, is a writer, you know, she, she's the one who saves, you know, the, the pig's life by, you know, writing words in her web, right? And, um, and, and I think that was a theme that many of the books that I loved were about writers and particularly little girls who were writers. So, you know, um, Harriet the Spy, you know, that kind of thing. And then too, I was also, um, I, I think I was a fairly promiscuous reader because I also remember in elementary school, you know, we were reading Philip Roth. I was reading and my friends were reading Philip Roth and Norman Mailer and, you know, these these kind of tough guy writers. Um, and, and so that was, you know, who knows what I was actually getting from those books at that, you know, at the age of 11 and 12. But I do remember reading them and feeling incredibly cool and, you know, really mature. What was um, your experience studying at Smith like uh, as an undergraduate in, in the 70s? And how did the, the kind of atmosphere on campus and things compare between then and now? I mean, obviously, you're, you're a professor, so it's different. And we also found this, this fascinating anecdote that you had a, was it a tutor in Old English who, who told you that you are going to be a writer and you were going to write books about Japan and America, the difference between the cultures? Yeah, 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 that's right. That's exactly right. Um, boy, you know, it's so hard to compare um, you know, time periods. I was there in the late 70s. Um, I have to say, too, that I spent a lot of time away from Smith. So I, I spent, you know, my, my college career was kind of broken up. I, I spent a couple of years in Japan, um, spent some time in Nepal and India, you know, um, I had a, you know, sort of um, leisurely approach to uh, college education. But Smith was, you know, it, it's a it's a woman's college. Um, and uh, it was then and it still is now. Um, you know, I, um, I also lived off campus, so I didn't really have the kind of full on um, Smith experience. But I found it to be a wonderful place. Um, I think it was just the right size for me. And um, the you know, the, the professors that I had were very encouraging. And in particular, this one, um, this one professor who, uh, you know, she, she, um, she taught old English and, um, and it was, that was really when I sort of started to understand about etymologies and, you know, and was just absolutely fascinated by that. And I was writing a lot of poetry at the time. I was also writing short fiction. Um, and, sh and I think I was showing them to her, even though it had nothing to do with the, you know, um, the, the subject that we were studying together. Um, but she had this sort of sense that, 
yeah, you, you will go on to be a novelist and you should write about, you know, cross-cultural experiences and what it's like to be mixed race and all of these kind of liminal, you know, the, this liminal point of view that you have as a mixed race person. And, and I think I took that very seriously. I, I didn't act on it right away, but eventually, you know, years later, I, I came back to doing exactly that. And then too, I had a wonderful Shakespeare professor and, you know, I, I still, um, you know, I, I still have my old copy of the Riverside Shakespeare with all of my enthusiastic little marginalia. And, you know, like just, I was so excited. I just remember being so excited by reading Shakespeare, you know, all these exclamation points, you know, it was great. That makes me feel so much better about the fact I still have my copy of Riverside Shakespeare on my bookshelf with my excited anecdotes scribbled in the, in the margins. Um, why did you, after graduating, then move into television? And how did those years in a, you know, a storytelling sector, but one sort of adjacent to novel writing, how did those years inform your writing craft? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I didn't go directly from Smith into, um, you know, into film and television at all. Um, I'd always been interested in, in particular, video production, because um, even when I was in high school, I was doing some video production. And that was the very early days when, you know, video cameras were, I mean, we, we used porta packs. They were huge contraptions that you had to carry around on, you know, over your shoulder. But so I'd always been interested in that. But after Smith, um, I really wanted to be a Shakespeare scholar. And, you know, but I was not encouraged to go into that field because, um, and I, I think back on it and, um, and I really think it was, you know, because as a mixed race person, somebody who was identifiably, you know, Asian looking, it, it, um, I was discouraged from doing it. And people were saying, you know, um, no, you should do, uh, comp lit. You should do comparative literature. And I, you know, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I got a, a fellowship. Things have changed so much, you know, in, in the, intervening 40 years or whatever. But back then there was still, I, I think there was kind of resistance there. Um, and I, anyway, I decided to study uh, Japanese, early Japanese theater. And so I went to, um, I got a fellowship from the Japanese Ministry of Education um, to do graduate work in Japan and study a no uh, playwright named Zayami. And so I did that for several years and I studied no and I, you know, learned the dance and the chanting and, and, and all of that and had several wonderful years in, in Japan and then came back to New York and I needed a job and there weren't a lot of jobs in sort of medieval Japanese theater in New York City at the time. Um, and I was hanging out with friends who were involved in the film business and, um, I could draw a little bit. When I was in Japan, I'd um, illustrated some textbooks. So uh, I got a job. My first job in, in film was um, in the art department of a low-budget horror film called Matt Riker Mutant Hunt. And after that, you know, then that, that became sort of what I did. And um, I worked as a production designer and art director um, for a whole series of, of these low-budget films. Um, Breeders, Necropolis, Robot Holocaust, you know, there was a whole series of them. Hopefully you've never seen them. I, I'm always worried about that. I, I actually I actually really wanted to ask about Mutant Hunt and Robot Holocaust. So I'm glad you've I'm glad you brought them up. But could you could you firstly maybe give us a, a brief praise of what those extraordinary films involved, but also more more generally of how did that uh, experience working in film shape your understanding of storytelling and I suppose eventually, you know, the way that you developed as a writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, they, they were very, very low budget, horrible films um, uh, that, you know, I could I can talk about those we can come back to, we can circle back to that if you'd like, but, um, but they were fun. You know, I mean, it was, it was fun to be a part of a film set and to learn to see things visually, you know, and I went on to, um, to, you know, to work in television. I, I did work in, you know, I didn't stay in low budget horror, you know, that was just, that was my entry. Um, but I went on to, um, work in Japanese television and then started making independent films of my own. And I, you know, I realized early on, especially doing the documentary work that I did for Japanese television, um, you know, I was, I would take a crew out um, and we'd, you know, we'd shoot. Um, and that was fun. I enjoyed that. But what I started to realize was that the 
program itself was created in the editing room. And so if I wanted to learn about storytelling, that's where I needed to be. Now, all of the editing at that time, I, I was, you know, I was working for Japanese television. So all of the editing was done in Japan. And um, they were just using me to kind of be out in the field in America to, sh you know, to, to um, direct and um, produce things, um, you know, in, in uh, the U.S. Um, but finally, you know, after pushing and pushing, um, they let me, they started asking me to come to Japan, um, and, uh, do the editing. And I, and that's really where I learned, uh, you know, how to tell a story. Up until that point, I had written, I'd tried writing novels. Um, but I could never, I could never move my characters through the arc of a plot in a quick, interesting and efficient way. Right. I would always get, I would always get, you know, sort of stuck somehow. Um, I mean, even something as stupid sounding as, you know, characters would enter a room, enter a location on one side, right? And the action was happening on the other side of the room. And I literally didn't know how to move my characters across the room to get to where the action was, right? It, the idea, you know, I think I was just a very literal minded person. Um, so the idea that you could, you, that there were techniques to cut, right, to edit, um, to compress time, um, to manage time, uh, you know, and these were largely visual tech, you know, visual techniques, you know, changing the camera angle, changing the frame size, you know, doing reverse shots, you know, there are all sorts of cutaways, right? There are all sorts of ways of doing that in film. And, and I learned to do that in the editing room in, you know, in, in Tokyo. And after that, when I went back to, uh, writing again, um, and, and tried writing another novel, suddenly I had the tools to do it. It was no longer a problem. The other thing too, of course, is that television is a very impatient medium and it's very expensive, right? So you can't mess around in TV. You know, you have to cut to the chase really quickly and kind of grab your viewers and, and hang on to them, right? And so techniques that I learned in editing, um, sort of helped me know how to do that almost instinctively when I went back to writing. And it, you know, it was, it was a wonderful, I remember feeling just like, oh my God, it, this used to be so difficult and now it's not. And that was, you know, the sort of big breakthrough. Well, that was the question I was going to ask actually, in terms of the judiciousness, do you think it taught you to be more sort of clinical in the way you describe things? I mean, I'm thinking of the screenwriting sort of epithet that you arrive to a scene late and get out early. Mm. Is that something that you think you've taken into your own writing in terms of clarity? Yes, I think so. I think I, I have a much better sense of where to start now, start a scene, start a, you know, start a book. Um, I remember my editor and I used to joke around about the, the hundred page rule, um, which is that, you know, it takes about a hundred pages to kind of warm up and, and create the scaffolding. And then you can cut that away and then start. Right. Um, and, and I mean, I think that's an exaggeration. Um, but there usually is some, you know, it requires some time, some pages, some whatever to kind of loosen up at the beginning. And very often that is just scaffolding. Um, and it can come down and, and, you know, be eliminated. I still, think that the getting out early is, you know, is hard. Um, I, I think I've, I'm a person, my, my default is to overwrite. Um, and so I, you know, my first drafts usually, you know, everything, scenes, paragraphs sort of dribble on a little bit too long. And so then I have to kind of go back in and, and cut them a little, you know, cut off that, that, the end bits. Um, so, th but that I think too is something, yes, is something I learned in, in editing visual, you know, visuals. Can we talk about My Year of Meats now and how you, you know, you you moved for after this apprenticeship in the film world to, to writing a novel. And we really love on the show to get into the mechanics of how people's first books came about in terms of agents and editors and, and things like that. So how did, how did that, you know, become the thing that it became? Yeah, well, you know, I had been working, as I said, I'd been working, you know, making independent films. Um, and I made, uh, I made two. I, I, and I had just finished, um, one called Having the Bones. And it was a documentary film, uh, sort of, what well, was a sort of 
hybrid documentary fiction film um, about um, my mother's side of the family. And, you know, it had done very well uh, for an independent documentary film, right? It had played at Sun, you know, it had gone into competition at Sundance. It, you know, played at festivals around the world. Um, <clears throat> but I was deeply in debt at that time because I had, you know, used my credit card to finance these two films. So I... Um, and, and I was really hoping to be able to sell this film to PBS or something to, to be able to pay off my credit card debt. And I wasn't able to do that. Um, so I had this $30,000 credit card debt. I had a grant from the Canadian government for $10,000 to work on another film script. And I took that money and went to Canada and um, started writing My Year of Meats. Um, and it was... I didn't know that it was going to be a novel at first. Um, it was really a series of, I was just kind of amusing myself, I think, and just writing down a series of, of weird anecdotes, things that had happened to me while I was on, uh, you know, location doing Japanese television. Um, but again, it just sort of picked up momentum and, and turned into, um, turned into a novel. And I remember giving myself a year. I had enough money to last for a year. And so the idea was that if I could finish this novel and sell it for $30,000 um, and clear my credit card debts, you know, that would be great. If I couldn't, then I would have to get a job, right? Um, and I'd never really had a real job before, you know, but I, at this point, was almost 40, and I thought, you know, it's it's time. So I'm going to have to get a job at a bank or, you know, something, um, something grown up and adult. Th this was a kind of terrifying prospect, right? So I had a lot of motivation to, to write this book. And I did. Um, I had a, uh, a friend um, who was uh, then an editor at Viking. And she and I had been in a writer's group. She was a friend from Smith. Um, and a classmate from Smith. And she and I had been writing um, together in a writing group. And I sent her, I think, the first um, 50 pages of, of the novel. And she had made it very clear to me that because we were friends, that she would not be able to acquire and edit my book, right? Um, it, it, she had, you know, it was challenging to mix, you know, a a professional relationship with a personal relationship. And so, but she was willing to give me advice. So I sent her the first 50 pages of the book. Um, she uh, gave me some very good advice. Again, you know, that's when we started talking about the 100 page rule, I think, you know, she said it was slow to start. So, you know, I, I kind of changed that. And, um, and then she explained to me, you know, you have to get a, you have to get an agent. Um, you know, this is how you do it. Uh, you know, look, at books that are in some way similar or comparable, you know, to yours. Look in the acknowledgments, see if you can find the agent's name um, and draft a query letter. Um, and so I did this and um, and was able to find an agent. Um, oh, and, and, you know, she said if I, this, and this was important, I think, she said, if I happen to know the agent who you know, you're querying, I'll drop her a note and, and say that, um, you know, that my friend will be contacting you. So I uh, chose an agent and wrote the query letter. And um, the agent responded favorably and uh, took the manuscript and read it and, um, and signed me on. Um, and so, you know, then the agent turned around and sent it right back to Carol, um, to my editor at the time. And, um, and, uh, she ended up after all of this ended up being my um my editor for the for all of my books um she she's uh you know she she's left to do other things now but uh yeah this is the lady who had been at university right? correct yeah yeah and who who'd said that she wouldn't work with you that's right that's right that's right but we ended up um yeah i think you know we talked it it was it was you know it was very interesting um because we it was difficult at times um, but we always had this feeling that and, and, you know, a commitment that our personal friendship came first, no matter what. And um, we made that very clear, you know, that that not, that that whatever happened in publishing, you know, it was not going to get in the way of our friendship. And it didn't. You know, we're, we're still very close friends. Um, so, you know, it was a uh, I think it was it was wonderful to feel the support, you know, to have the support of somebody I'd known, you know, since I was 20. Right. 
um, as I was embarking on this new, you know, this new career venture. I read that because the book was a hit, you managed to clear your debts from from filmmaking. But was that from the advance or was that from kind of later royalties? I think that was the advance. Yeah, that was the advance. And it was, yeah, it was such a relief, you know. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist Ruth Ozeki. As you might have expected by this point, it's time for the next instalment of our new segment. In this segment, we share some bonus material from previous guests of the show. So they answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the speechwriter, Simon Lancaster, on the most important trait a speechwriter should have. Ultimate empathy, being able to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're writing for and describe the world as they see it, telling stories from their life, talking about what they care about and capturing their tone of voice. So really being able to put yourself into someone else's shoes. I mean, speech writing is such a weird job. It's like an act of psychological transference. And so that's the the most important thing to get right. I've known heaps of people who are brilliant writers, many of whom have sold best-selling books, who then try to write a speech for someone else, but they fail because their own voice is too strong. You know, you need to become a, a receptacle for someone else's uh, thoughts and ideas when you're a speech writer. So that's my last point, ultimate empathy. Good luck. That was Simon Lancaster. And if you were interested in what Simon had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website now. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Ruth Ozeki. Could you tell us about All Over Creation, your, your novel in 2003, and then also the, the sort of 10 years that followed that and, and some of the difficulties that you had writing in that time? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, after writing My Year of Meats, I mean, that, that book did quite well. But there were things in that book that I felt that I hadn't covered adequately or fairly. Um, and I wanted to go more deeply into various problems with food production. I was, that's what I was interested in, in at the time. Um, and I was particularly interested in uh, genetic engineering, um, the genetic engineering of food. And it was something that I didn't understand, but I found it, you know, disturbing. And so I wanted to learn more about it. And f- I think, you know, for me, Signing on to write a novel is um, a way of creating a container in which I can do the kinds of research that normally I would not have time to do, right? And um, so I think all of my books have some kind of problem or question or some, you know, deep interest at the core of them um, that that I can use to kind of justify the time and the expense of, of doing research. Um, and so... <laughs> Oliver Creation was a book about the genetic engineering of potatoes, right? I mean, it doesn't sound like much of a fiction book, you know, it doesn't sound like a fascinating novel. Um, but, you know, the, the, you know, I went to Idaho and, and, uh, you know, really, um, did a deep dive into, into potato culture. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a story about farmers. It's a story about farmers and, um, a biotech company and, um, a group of radical, uh, environmental activists. Um, and, you know, the sort of collision um, between these three uh, sort of conflicting forces um, in a small town uh, in Idaho. I wrote the book and it was, you know, it, the, the second book, I think, is is hard, right? Um, there, there's a sense that it has to, you know, readers have expectations. You know, your publishers, your editors have expectations at that point. And I don't do well when people expect things from me, I, I tend to, you know, when somebody expects something, I, I, I have a kind of contrarian 
streak and I just want to do the opposite. And so it was harder to write that book than it was to write um, My Year of Meats. My Year of Meats, I did it very quickly and it was in a year. I think um, all over creation, it took me three or four years, right? And I published it and it, you know, it was well reviewed. It didn't sell as well as My Year of Meats. And I think I was um, uh, disappointed um, by that. Um, but then at the time too, you know, my, um, my dad had died right around the publication of My Year of Meats. Um, when I was writing All Over Creation, I was taking care of my mom who had Alzheimer's. Um, and she was living with us on this island where, um, you know, in Canada where we were living at the time. And, you know, it was tough. It was really hard to, to do this. Um, I guess it was right around the time that um, I finished and All Over Creation was published, my mom was also diagnosed with cancer. Um, so she had Alzheimer's and cancer. And this was even harder because she didn't, she couldn't remember what was wrong with her. And so we had to move her off the island. We moved her down to a, um, to Victoria, uh, where, you know, she could have adequate medical care. Um, I moved there with her. Um, so that was a huge disruption. And right around the time when the paperback of, uh, all of her creation was pub uh, published, my mom died. Okay. And so I think the, um, you know, I had been kind of holding it together, uh, you know, through the, you know, first it was the money issue and being, you know, being really super stressed about money, um, you know, and then, you know, sort of writing the book, writing the first book, getting it out, paying off the debt, but my dad died, right? Writing the second book, kind of getting past the, the, the fear of, you know, uh, that, that sort of sophomore slump fear, um, getting it, finally getting it out. And then my mom died. Right. And, and so there was a, I think it was just the accumulation of a lot of grief um, that just pretty much stopped me short. I had this feeling then that, um, you know, that, that publishing a book was somehow connected to the death of somebody who I loved. And, you know, that there was a price that I was paying for having a voice and, you know, writing these books. And, um, you know, it was a, yes, this was a kind of weird superstition, but it was, you know, a kind of one that was pretty deeply rooted, I think, in my, um, in my unconscious. Um, so I took some time off and, and, you know, I, um, was trying to write, um, but it wasn't working. And at that point, I just decided, you know, I, I, I need help, you know, and I um, started to get more deeply involved in the Buddhist community. I had been I had been meditating and, um, you know, working with a Buddhist, various Buddhist groups um, since the mid 90s. But um, this was really a point where I just decided I need to take this more seriously. And uh, so I so I did. And, and I started to work towards um, priest ordination and um, and uh you know, that's a long involved process. Um, but eventually I was ordained in 2010. Um, and I think I was thinking, you know, at the time I, I was thinking, well, you know, okay, so the writing thing, maybe that's not going to work out, you know, uh, somehow it's just, it's not working. Um, so, but, but the Buddhist practice is something that has, is, you know, very, you know, profoundly helpful to me. And so I'll do that you know, and, and share that with people, um, you know, as a priest instead. Um, and, but perversely, of course, what happened is that as soon as I let go of my ambitions to be a novelist, right, suddenly the writing started to flow again, right? And, and so then I was like in this position of, you know, I've, or, you know, I've ordained, um, and I, you know, want to pursue that path, but at the same time, suddenly, you know, um, and at the time it was uh, a tale for the time being, right? Um, suddenly a tale for the time being started to come together in, you know, this, this very exciting and uh, yeah, just very exciting way. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's, as soon as you stop trying to do something, suddenly, you know, you can do it, right? Could we talk a little bit about how your role as a priest and your role as a writer intersect? or don't. I found a quote from an interview with you where you said, my old story is that I'm a novelist. My new story is that I'm a priest. Ordination didn't eliminate one story. It just added another plot line and the two often feel irreconcilable. 
could you tell us a little bit more about that and how you've managed to make them coexist somewhat easily? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, they do, I think, now. At the time, um, you know, it was the, the... I didn't know, I think, when I was first ordained, you know, you don't really know what that means, you know. Um, and it means something different for everyone, too. So at the time, I was struggling to understand what does it mean for somebody like me to be a priest, you know. Um, I, I think I still wonder that. But um, it's over time, I'm, you know, I think I've come to understand that, um, you know, that the writing in the same way that, you know, that the way I practice Zen is an expression, right? It's a creative expression. Writing is also a creative expression, right? Um, and so I don't find them irreconcilable anymore. In fact, I don't really see all that much difference between them. Um, it seems like the Buddhism is an extension of my writing practice. The writing practice is an extension of my Buddhist practice. Um, the two, um, you know, the two, I think, really um, support each other in wonderful ways. Um, and, and two, you know, I mean, the you know, basic mindfulness is something that writers, you know, it, it helps. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, we I think most writers spend a lot of time struggling with self-doubt and, and you know, all of the angstiness of, of you know, the creative process. Um, and so when I'm teaching writing, the first thing I teach my students is how to meditate. And that is, you know, completely folded into you know, those kind of contemplative techniques, practices are very much folded into um, the kinds of, you know, writing that um, I'm asking my students to do and that and that I do myself. You know, the last two books were um, very overtly um, a, you know, sort of inspired by Buddhism. Um, I'm not sure, you know, the first two books I wrote were inspired by my concerns about, you know, food and sustainability, you know, and, and climate change. Um, the second two books, I think, were, you know, have been very much overtly inspired by by Buddhism. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case for the next one. Um, so I think, you know, uh, I seem to be doing things in pairs, right? So I think I'm, I'm starting a new pair right now. I was saying to Rachel before the interview that I really wanted to ask you about meditation because um, it's something that I do and I find very helpful. But I was wondering if you could unpack a little bit more this kind of link between meditation and your writing. I think the thing that I find terribly useful about it is that I find if I'm trying to resolve a, a situation, be it with something, a piece I'm working on or, or in, in my personal professional life, I find that it's useful to kind of run my conscious brain at it and then to sort of run my, let my unconscious shoot at it. And I often find that it's during meditation that that actually the solution be it to a, a, a creative question or to a relation interpersonal question comes up and i was wondering if that's something that you use and also find yourself very much so yeah um again when you turn your attention to a problem it's almost like the beam you know of light is almost too strong and the you know the answer kind of dissipates and disappears. It's, it's, it's hard to, I think, very often the kinds of problems that I run into in, um, you know, in, in writing are, um, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of amorphous problems, you know, and, and ideas are like dreams, you know, um, in the same way that when you try to remember a dream, the dream vanishes, right? I, I find that to be the case with, with ideas for, um, you know, for writing as well. You know, when I turn my attention on it, it's it's almost, you know, my conscious attention, it's almost too strong a beam. And and so the idea kind of dissipates. But when I just, you know, the question is there, the, the you know, the dream is there. And when I um, sort of drop my focus, you know, and, um, and sit um, in meditation, very often I have the same experience that the idea, you know, the, the solution will either come to me then or come to me right after. Um, it just changes my, um, it changes my relationship with my mind. You know, the meditation just, um, you know, you, you sort of drop into a deeper kind of awareness, a deeper kind of consciousness. And I think it's the place where, you know, where stories and poems and art and music comes from, you know, it doesn't come from, you know, it doesn't come from the, the, the rational part of the brain. It comes from someplace else. Um, 
you know, the, the unconscious or whatever. So I think, yes, absolutely. That, that, you know, learning to meditate helps you sort of drop into that more relaxed, um, less ambitious space. I was intrigued to see as well that you keep a process journal where you write questions about your work that you sort of are looking for the answer to at some point. Is that part of that kind of meditative process, posing the questions, but not necessarily immediately reaching for the answers? Yes, very much so. Um, the process journal uh, has been something that, you know, I didn't know what it was when I started doing it. It wasn't like, you know, I knew about process journals and started writing one. It was more just that um, I was, I remember I was writing my year of meets and I started this, you know, adjacent document um, and it was almost like a blog, you know, like a web blog posting, right? Where um, I wasn't every day at first, but, you know, from time to time, I just needed to talk about the process of writing. You know, I just needed to articulate questions and problems and, you know, have a place to dump ideas. And, um, you know, I needed a place to complain, um, you know, and that's what the process journal became. Um, so I would just put the date and then dump, you know, whatever it was that I was, you know, that was on my mind that I needed to kind of work out. I would just kind of dump it into the process journal. And I do think that um, by articulating the question or describing the problem, right, that you're having, even if you're not you know, you you don't know what the answer is going to be, obviously, because that that's the nature of a question, right? But just the asking of the question invites answers, right? And so to ask the question in the process journal and then walk away from it and, you know, take a walk or meditate or go to sleep or wash the dishes or take a shower, you know, um, having asked the question, the ideas, you know, I think, again, your unconscious just starts working on it. Right. And and I do this before I go to bed, too. I'll you know, I'll uh, think about um, a situation that's perplexing me somehow, be it fictional or, or non-fictional. And um, and very often when I wake up in the morning, you know, my mind has kind of what come up with an answer or at least is pointed in the right direction. You know, um, so I find the process journal to be it, it's a you know, I always have one going. You know, and and it, it whether I'm working on a project or not, I just kind of keep the process journal going. Um, it's a place to write, to you know, a place to dump ideas. As I said, a place to you know to complain, to brag, to you know, everything. Everything just goes into the process journal. So it, it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interacts with people's writing lives. So um, and you've already alluded to this in terms of, you know, you're trying to clear your debt with your first book and be, you know, be as candid or as guarded as, as, as you like. But how has that been a factor throughout your career and particularly when A Tale for the Time Being had its reception and particularly that, that book a shortlisting? How did that change things for you? I've always, I, I've never really understood money um, and I've never been good with it. Um, it, it's, and, and as a result, I've never been, well, that's not true. I was going to say, I've never been particularly worried about it, but that's not true because I have been, I mean, when you're in debt, you worry about money, you know, you worry profoundly about money. Um, but I guess I've always had this sense that, um, you know, if, if the writing thing doesn't work out, you know, I speak Japanese, I'm bilingual, you know, I'll get a job at a bank or I'll get a job as a translator. That was what I was thinking when I was, you know, writing my year of meets. Um, and I've always had this kind of, this sense that somehow, you know, I, I'll, I'll make it through. Um, even if, you know, even if I, uh, the books don't, you know, make much money. And, and they didn't for a while, you know, and certainly my films were, you know, financial, you know, financial failures. They were disasters. Um, films cost so much to make. You know, one of the reasons I switched to writing was because writing is cheap. You know, you just need, you know, you need paper and like something to write with and you can write a novel. That's not the case with films, you know, with film, you need all sorts of equipment and stuff. Um, so in any case, the, yeah, so, you know, I was kind of 
But one of the ways that I've also dealt with money is that, you know, by living very cheaply. And my husband and I moved to Canada. I mean, he's he's Canadian, but we decided to live in Canada because we could get free health insurance there, which is not the case in the United States. Um, health insurance is a huge concern for everyone here um, and, and a huge expense. Um, so, you know, we moved to Canada. We moved to a very small rural island where we could l grow our own food and live cheaply. Um, there was always a sense that somehow, you know, even if we didn't have money, we would. And, and my husband's an artist, too. So, um, you know, we always had this sense that somehow we would make ends meet. Um, and then the, you know, the with a tale for the time being, um, you know, the and the Booker shortlist was was hugely important. Um, you know, suddenly, you know, there was a kind of I think I my books had a kind of presence um, in in the, the world that, um, you know, that they hadn't before. Although My Year of Meats was published internationally and published very well, too. So um, but there was anyway, there was a you know, there was a real um, uh, shift there. And it's made things a lot easier. The other thing, though, is that in uh, 2015, um, I decided to take a, a job, you know, like a, a job with a paycheck where you don't have to, like, you know, hound your employer for money and submit invoices and, you know, keep your fingers crossed and hope that you get paid. Um, this one, actually, the, the money just kind of like appears in my bank account every two weeks. I've never had this before. You know, there's benefits and, and you know, um, and teaching has been great. You know, I mean, I, I, this is this is a job at Smith where, that I, you know, I'm teaching creative writing there. And it's it's been it's been wonderful. Um, you know, uh, it does cut into my writing time. So that's the trade off. Right. But I can really understand now why jobs are a good thing. You know, jobs are great. You know, it's it's a real, you know, it, it, it's just very comforting to know that the paycheck will be there. Um, but having not gotten used to that, you know, I've never since I'd never gotten used to that. Um, it was never something I relied on or or needed. I think we're coming towards the end of our time. So another question that we ask novelists on the show is whether they're a plotter or a plunger, someone who works out the arc of the story and the beats before they start writing or whether there's someone who just goes straight in and, and see where their see where their mind takes them which camp do you fall in or is it somewhere between the two I think I'm more of a plunger but I'm also somewhere in between the two um you know so I I um it's funny because here we talk about it as a pantser not a plunger and pants is like flying by the seat of your pants right so either you you plot or you pants, right? It sounds kind of a little mm, sketchy, but um, in any case, I'm much more of a fly by the seat of your pants, you know, just kind of dive in and, and do it, um, at least at the beginning, right? But then after a certain amount of, you know, after a certain amount, number of scenes or pages, you know, have, have been generated and I start to know the characters, I start to be able to see what's going to happen. Right. Um, and very often I'll early on, I'll get a sense of an ending, right, that I aim at. Um, and sometimes that changes. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. But very often the, you know, the, the very end of the book is something that I think has come to me quite early on in the process. So at least it gives me a direction to move in. Um, and that's when I start to not make outlines necessarily, but to, um, it's almost more like mapping. It's mapping the territory that I've already covered and also a little bit ahead, right? So it's, you know, it's like navigating, it's like driving with a map that shows you where you've, you know, where you've been and shows you just a little bit ahead of the journey, right? Um, and then that process continues, um, pretty much to the end. Um, I do things as well, you know, writing scenes and putting them up on the wall and, um, you know, all of those, you know, these tricks that I learned from uh, film and television. And um, so, but that's part of the mapping process. 
as Rachel said, we're, we're right up against our time limit. But a, a final question from me is, do you think the fact that you know Japanese affects how you write in English? Because is it right that just the, the kind of way, the complexity of Japanese, the fact that it's a, a, a character system, the way it's explained to me is like a 12-year-old child in Japan can't read a newspaper. It's too complicated. They don't know enough stuff. Do you think the fact that you're au fait with this completely different linguistic tradition, has that shaped how you write in English, do you think? I would imagine it has. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how. Um, part of it is that I'm very familiar with Japanese literature and the plot structures are different as well as language, you know, linguistic structures. So I think that must be, um, you know, that must have influenced me as well. I would imagine that being bilingual influences one's, you know, writing in either language. Um, it'd be an interesting question to ask Jimpa Lahiri. Uh, you know, who has taught her, you know, I mean, she's learned Italian as a as an adult. Um, I wonder if it's changed the way she writes. We spoke to Elif Schwach as well about this and it, the answers were fascinating. Well, we've run out of time, but thank you so much, Ruth, for a fascinating discussion and all the very best with all of your projects going forward. Thank you, Rachel. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Ruth Azeki. She's on Twitter at Azeki Land, and her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is published by Canongate. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway with the interview with Ruth? I really enjoyed talking to Ruth. Um... And the piece that I mentioned uh, in the interview briefly about uh, writing and being a, a Buddhist priest is definitely worth checking out uh, if listeners are interested. Um, I guess the thing that actually I wanted to discuss was what, what we didn't talk about. In that piece, she talks about uh, writing from a place of regret and writing to understand herself, which I thought was really interesting. She says she um, writes to test alternative possibilities and outcomes and to discover something true, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and I really enjoyed her book, uh, A Tale for the Time Being, uh, which is really richly layered and has uh, kind of a avatar for herself as a novelist in there as well. What about you? I also really enjoyed talking to her. I thought she was a very wise lady. Um, a few things stuck out with me. I, I loved hearing about her early career working on like trash horror films in New York that was, that was excellent. <laughs> yeah. I thought, and I thought also this, this interface between um, Buddhism and between uh, meditation, which is something I'm quite into, and writing. And then this idea that she had this sort of terrible block, and it was when, in a sense, that she sort of let go of her aspirations and her ambitions that things that things came through and, and worked out. Mm. Another thing that we could have maybe drilled into more is the revision process for that yeah. book. Um, and how it became the book a sort of shortlisted, yeah, masterpiece that it is. But I feel we've we've caught her at an excellent time in her career because I think she's going to be going to be exploding. So anyway, I'm really really good to have her on. Anyway, Rachel, what have you been up to? Um, I was about to say I was on my first proper hendy this week, which is why I sound like uh, a little bit croaky. Um, but in a professional sense, <laughs> I've been. Uh, covering the uh culture section of the economist this week so that's been busy um okay. i'm also writing a piece about a, a new exhibition about the design of football at the design museum uh studiously okay. avoiding the subject of my own team who are doing terribly um so yeah juggling a few things at the minute but it's all very enjoyable how about you uh, i was going to say I, I did i think i saw your instagram story from from the hindu which looked like some enthusiastic karaoke to robbie williams is that is that a correct analysis? Uh, it, was, it wasn't karaoke. It was a band. Um, but the restaurant encouraged people to get up on the benches and sing. So that was what that was. And it was so loud, which is why I'm, I'm quite hoarse, because you had to shout to talk to anyone. It looked it looked like a, an excellent hendo, so I'm glad I'm glad you guys had fun. <laughs> um, I have been uh, I, I closed uh, this piece for 1843 on the um, Invictus Games, which is good to to get that out of the way, uh, and now kind of forging forward with um, 
some other magazine work and some some stuff on this book project. So busy, but um, yeah, things things are good. Uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aiken. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.